Greetings and salutations. This is the Accelerated Culture Podcast, the rise of alternative music in the 80s and beyond. In this podcast, we aim to walk through an often ignored bit of music history. My co-host Trey and I will explore how new waves stormed the airwaves in the early 80s and gave way to the rise of alternative music. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Accelerated Culture Podcast. I am Trey. And I'm Lori. How are you feeling, Trey? I'm feeling a little better. For those of you that don't know, I had COVID over the past week, and I'm still recovering it from it a little bit here. Well, you look better. So I, I'm glad uh, I'm glad you're feeling well enough to record, because we are going to continue with the second half of 1984. Yes, indeed, we are. To kind of recap for our listeners, our previous episode, we did songs from the first six months of 1984. There were just so many phenomenal songs in 84 that we decided that we were going to split it up into two. So now we're starting with July of 84 through the end of the year, yeah? Yes, indeed we are. At first we have Lucky Star by Madonna. She didn't fit in with the rest of the stuff I was listening to type thing. And it seemed like all the Duran Duran chicks got big into her. Was it like it that up there too? Oh yeah, absolutely. And Trey, I had all the black O-ring bracelets, you know, the lace the, gloves. I mean, I was going to say, did you have little fishnet gloves and the half shirt? I still do. I should go grab them and show them to you. <laughs> One of those little hats. Well, I didn't have a hat, no. But uh, I mean, I, I I still have the the black lace fingerless gloves and stuff that I still wear occasionally. Freak out my students, you know. That was the attraction to her for me. Was all the you know, like I said, the Duran Duran girls were getting big into her, dressing <laughs> like her even better. So I was just like, oh yeah, yeah. The music wasn't bad either. You know, this was actually I think one of my favorite songs back in '84. I I played this album to death, but especially this song. And of course, then it had a little bit of a resurgence back when Guy Ritchie released the movie Snatch because Bullet Tooth Tony that was played by Vinnie Jones, he really, really liked the song and listened to the song in the movie. Do you remember that at all? No, I don't. Oh, such a good movie. I've actually never seen it. Oh, you need to see it. It's really, really I know, good. That's one, one I need to sit down and watch. Yeah. 
So Lucky Star, it did peak at number four on the Billboard charts. And it was produced by John Jellybean Benitez, who was Madonna's boyfriend at the time. Yes. Yep. Yep. I, I think he was he involved with the production of like a version too. Uh, no, that was Nile Rogers. That's right. I, th- but I thought he was still a little bit in there somehow. I don't know. It's possible. It's possible. But I mean, Nile really got the production credit on that one. So I had the I had a version of the twelve inch. It just it was in a plain white sleeve. It didn't have anything on the cover of it. Okay. And they had the single and the dance mix, and I think just the album version on it. You know, I remember here in Chicago, one of the UHF channels, WPWR. Now, for you kids listening, UHF was a a television frequency, but it was like on the high end of the dial where all of like the little small stations were on, you know, the little local stations, they weren't the big networks, but they had a contest, basically who could do the best Madonna impression. And they brought girls into the studio like my age. And, uh, you know, they were dressed up like Madonna and they were all lip syncing to this song. I don't know who ended up winning, but I remember there were a lot of, a lot of really surprisingly good performances. Mm -hmm. So, so good choice. Good choice. Good, uh, good song to start us off with. So I had to start us off, Trey, with Never Ending Story by Lamal. you believe i've never seen this movie oh my god trey <laughs> trey i am still a little bit traumatized by one of the characters who dies in in never yeah Story. I know that i'm well okay. very familiar with that so i've seen parts of it i just i think probably i've seen the whole movie just never at one time oh i gotcha that type of deal i gotcha no i love the movie now interestingly enough this song doesn't actually appear in the movie right i read that yeah. And did you also read that it was written by Giorgio Moroder? I did know that. It seems like he wrote everything right at that point in time, from about 75 up there to the mid-80s. You know, I didn't realize that he had written it, but now that I listen to it, it's it's obvious. And the lyrics were by Keith Forsey. So Lamal, as you know, was the lead singer of Kaja Gugu. Mm-hmm. Who was discovered by Nick Rhodes. Yeah, I was going to say. Grant. Oh, well, then I'll let you say it because I feel like I'm saying everything. No, you're fine. It's your song. Did they only put out one album? No, I think they had more than one. Didn't they sort of splinter up into, you know. By 85, so a year after this, they started branding themselves as Kaja instead of Kaja Gugu. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But uh, then one other very interesting thing, Limal is actually an anagram of the lead singer's last name, Hamill. 
H-A-M-I-L-L became Limal, Christopher Hamill. I believe he's still churning them out here and there, isn't he? I think he is still around, yeah. And then he recently came out. Oh, did he? Now, mm-hmm. I can't say that that really surprises me. I, 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 not to sound rude, but it was kind of those, one of those things with me, too, where I was like, really? <laughs> Would have never guessed. Yeah. More power to you, though. Yeah. Okay, so what's the next song you chose? 99 Love Balloons by Nana. And again, you know, I love this song, but it was probably more to do with the chicks singing it than anything else. I mean, guys, I was 14 at the time, guys. <laughs> so, you know, but you had noted when we were talking about this that the German version was better. And it totally is, because when I bought the 45 and I got home and looked at it, it said German version, you know, German language on the B side, I flipped it over and played it. I was like, this absolutely rules. I think that's true of a number of songs around that time period that came that were originally German. Something gets lost, I think, mm-hmm. when it, it gets translated to English, right? We saw that with Falco and Der Kommissar. It was a, the same kind of thing. It's a great song. I, you know, I can't say much about the band. I really don't know a whole lot about them. I, this seemed to be their only real output over the years. Though I did notice on YouTube, they still perform live all the time. Oh, that's cool. And there's like 16 people in the band, which I was like, why is there so many people playing this? For me, the appeal for this song was actually the lyrics. Now, obviously, I don't speak German, so obviously I had to listen to the English version. But it's really a protest song, and that's going to be a recurring theme in this episode, Trey. We've got a a number of songs that are kind of protest songs, anti-nuclear war, which was really a very big threat hanging over our heads in 84, you know? Right. The Cold War was coming on. We didn't really, did you do the, do the uh, get into your desk thing and all that up there? We didn't do drills, but our teachers really did kind of put the fear into us that we really thought there was going to be a nuclear war in our lifetime. And I got to be honest, for a little kid, that's terrifying to be hearing from your teachers. It wasn't so much down here at all. No? Mm-mm. Hmm. Well, if you listen to the lyrics, it kind of tells a story about a boy and a girl innocently releasing a batch of 99 red balloons into the air. And they pick up these objects on the radar, don't know what they are. And so the international governments go into a panic and it ends up triggering a nuclear holocaust. Mm-hmm. This song did go to number two on the Billboard charts here in the U.S. Yeah, it was a massive song. It was another one of those songs that was just absolutely everywhere for about six six weeks there. Yeah. You, know, you couldn't take a step without hearing it. Yeah. 
And obviously, I purchased the 45. I don't recall ever even seeing the complete album for sale. Hmm. Speaking of protest songs, my next song is Shout by Tears for Fears, which is also a protest song. Let's listen. Tears for Fears. I know you're a fan. I'm a fan. Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith. And this was the first single from their 1985 album, Songs from the Big Chair. Now, the single was actually released on November 23rd of 1984 in advance of the album. And it is a a song about political protest. You know, I think at first when people listen to it, they're thinking, oh, this must be like primal screen kind of therapy, right? Oh, shout, let it all out. But if you listen very closely, it's about standing up and speaking out against the things that you are opposed to. It's very much a protest song. I think it goes without saying, this is an absolutely fantastic album. Mm -hmm. And definitely one of the best of the 80s. I mean, it's just, these guys are phenomenal. You know, I didn't really appreciate it as much at first. I had a few classmates who were uh, very much into Tears for Fears and had Roland and Kurt's pictures in their lockers and stuff. It took me a little while to catch on. But I agree, this is a fantastic album. And the single took a little while to catch on. I mean, it was released in November of 84. It would eventually reach number one on the Billboard chart in August of 1985. So it was kind of a slow burn there. Tears for Fears by the way, are still recording. They put out a new album last year, 2022, and the whole thing was just absolutely amazing. You heard it? I played it on YouTube a time or two. It was pretty good. Oh, so good. So good. I had a friend that went and saw him in Phoenix, Arizona, back at the beginning of the summer, and he was posting videos from the show. I was just like, good God, how do these guys sound so good live? I mean, it was exactly like the record. See, I love bands like that. I love bands that, you know, people that are in their mid-60s pulling Uh us off. But again, there was like nine people up there on stage. Okay. You know, they've got a huge backing band and a couple of backup singers and people switching instruments. But that makes sense because they have such a big sound, right? Yeah. While they've synthesizers. Yeah. Hey, speaking of synthesizers, what's your next song, Trey? Burn For You by NXS. It's no use pretending that I understand 
with that fantastic intro. Yeah, you know, unfortunately, because we're limited to how much of the song we can play, our, our listeners aren't going to be able to hear the intro because it's got a like about oh, yeah. a six, 60 second or so instrumental intro where it sounds almost like a bell donging, you know, like a chime. Um, it is a really, really cool song, though. I like the live version better than I do the album version. Okay. In fact, I first noticed it on that live video. The uh, what is it? Where they play? What is it called that they play for the princess and the the Rock and the Royals? Yes, that's when I first. I was like, "Hey, wait a second, that actually kind of rocks." Yeah, no, that was really good. For some reason, this NXS album, which was the swing, didn't really seem to get a lot of airplay here in the U.S. At least not by us. Not at all. So the album prior to this, Shabu Shaba was their first big international hit. Then all of a sudden there's this album. And yeah, for some reason it didn't even register over here. And they were really doing a lot more progressive stuff with synths on this this album. Mm -hmm. The backing vocals on this song are Jenny Morris, who's a New Zealand singer. She's a longtime collaborator with the band. Trey, you mentioned Rockin' the Royals. She was the backup singer for Rockin' the Royals. And somebody named Shireen, who was a singer for a band called Big Pig. And Big Pig actually supported NXS on tour in 1988. I had that out. Oh, did you really? Mm -hmm. Oh, so then the voice sounds familiar to you then. I never didn't know that till just now. Oh, okay. Have you, have you ever heard that album? I can't say that I have. Well, no offense to Big Pig, but it, it isn't that great. Okay. Well, it's one of those three or four good songs and the rest is kind of yeah, albums. Gotcha. One more thing worth noting about Burn For You is it was the first music video of the bands directed by Richard Lowenstein, who would become a longtime collaborator and mm -hmm. direct some of the band's most famous videos. But this was the first one that he directed. Yeah, it just it just it worked. It worked well. Yeah. So speaking of NXS, I chose an NXS song as well for 1984 off the same album. I chose another protest song, Dancing on the Jetty. It's, it is. Shop the Now I see it now I didn't hear this song when it came out in 84. I heard this much later and I always think of the short film La Jete, which is the film that 12 Monkeys was based on. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I've actually never seen that. I'm familiar with it. Which one? 12 Monkeys or La Jete? I've seen 12 Monkeys and Love It. I've never seen La Jete. La Jete? I can't. 
I can't say that. You say it. Le jeté. It's it's really <laughs> it's really good. It's only about like 12 minutes long. So yeah, it was from 1962. Chris Marker was the director. This song I chose, it's a, a bit more rock and roll than some of the other songs on the swing. I really like the refrain, watch the world argue, argue with themselves. Who's going to teach me peace and happiness? Even now in 2023, that seems very apropos. You know, you were right. This album didn't really seem to get much attention in this country. It's a shame because a lot of critics cite this as like one of their most influential albums. I didn't even know it was out until I happened on at the store one day and got it. I'm not even sure I realized it was a brand new album from them. Just something I'd never seen by them. You know, I'd never heard of it until 2020. Hell no. <laughs> no, seriously. I was reading the band's official biography called Story to Story. Mm -hmm. And they mentioned this album. And I'm like, why have I never heard of this album? And so I went and found it and downloaded it. Wow, it's a fantastic album. Oh, it is. It's great. It's not one I listen to as regularly as some of their other albums. I think maybe because it's not as rock and roll as some of their other albums, but there's some good stuff on there. You can really tell they were really kind of starting to hit their stride, which they really hit with their next album and kept going. You, you could still hear a band kind of kind of exploring and looking for themselves, and they, they kind of touched on it on this album. Yeah, they were really finding their own sound. Right, right. Yeah. Up next, we have Wild Boys by Duran Duran. Just a release their somewhat poorly received arena live LP. And I'll let you expound on that a little. Well, you know, I don't remember reading any reviews of it or anything. Again, I was a lot younger. I remember listening to it. I remember, I think my dad bought it for me for Christmas in 84. That's when I got it too. And I... I was really excited for the Wild Boys because that was the one. Oh, yeah. They made a big deal about that. Yeah. That. Well, that was the one new studio track. Everything else was mm -hmm. live. But now it's interesting because I, that live album has become such an important part of the Duran Duran fandom. It opens with a, is there something I should know? Then goes to Hungry Like the Wolf, New Religion. Oh, I love the live version of New Religion on there. Oh, me too. And that was a big bone of contention with it was a track selection. Well, you know, for the fans, we were eagerly anticipating anything new that the boys would put mm -hmm. out, even if it was just this one song. Now, Nile Rogers is once again producing this song. He had 
come back and remixed and produced the reflex for them. And he did such a good job. They invited him back for the wild boys. It peaked at number two on the billboard chart. And at the time, the music video, which was directed by Russell Mulcahy, was the most expensive music video ever created up until that time. It was well over 100 million pounds. Now, you know the story about how this came about, right? The video itself or Russell McCauley getting involved with the band or? Well, the, the video and the song. So Russell Mulcahy was aspiring to direct feature films. You know, he'd done mm-hmm. a lot of music videos. He did like Vienna for Ultravox. He did a few Duran Duran videos. He did I'm Still Standing for Elton John. But he always aspired to do feature films. And he had purchased the rights to William S. Burroughs' book, The Wild Boys. Okay, yeah. And it's a very (laughs) homoerotic kind of... Well, I mean, if you're familiar with Burroughs, it... it, No, I'm... I'm, I'm... (laughs) Yeah, I know. I, I, I don't know if our audience is familiar with his work or not, but... So I think they're all going to be familiar with this story. So he did a treatment for, you know, like storyboards and stuff for how he wanted this movie to look visually. And for whatever reason, the the movie never got off the ground. And he had asked Duran Duran to write a song called Wild Boys for the movie. And so that is where this came from. I love it. It's one of my favorite Duran Duran songs. I think it's one of the best things they did. Yeah, the video, everything about it. You know, it's worth noting that at the same year, Russell McCauley also directed the Australian horror movie Razorback. Oh, really? Had a killer giant board. If you've never seen it, you need to watch it. It's it's actually really good. Yeah. The only movie that I know that he's done was The Highlander. Yeah, he did do that, didn't he? Yeah. I forgot he directed that. But yeah, check out Razorback, guys out there in the audience. It's a, if you like horror movies, it's a pretty cool little foot. Now, can we talk a little bit, Trey, about like the not-so-subtle bondage themes in this video? <laughs> I mean, we've got Simon tied to a windmill being spun around. And interestingly enough, we see Simon tied to a clock in an Arcadia video my husband saw it and said, is this guy just like being tied up and spun around or what? And it just like, <laughs> I, I, I lost my shit when he said that. It was so funny. Didn't Simon almost get drowned on that windmill contraption? Hey, yes. Well, left him under the water. I think that over the years, the story has become overblown because to hear Simon right. tell it, it doesn't sound like it was that big a deal. The windmill stopped and his head was partly submerged underwater. At no point would his entire head have been underwater, you know, and I'm sure he could have easily lifted his head to be able to breathe. In one interview I saw, he said he didn't even remember it. Hmm. But that whole time was probably a blur. But anyway, so yeah, we've got John Taylor tied to the roof of a car being forced to watch videos. But then there's also this kind of like, I don't know self-loving theme to it because the the videos he's being forced to watch are videos of himself mm-hmm. which is really weird we got nick in a cage and he's tied up you know up on a uh like scaffolding mm-hmm. 
he was thwarting off monsters with his guitar at one point, wasn't he? Yeah, well, you know, in the edited version of the video, you can't tell when Simon is reaching his hand up, he's reaching his hand up to, to Andy. But you can't tell the way that that video is edited that that's what's happening. Anything else you want to say about Wild Boys? Well, more is going to come up with them in 85. Yes. The members of Duran Duran, of course, because that was another big year for them in good ways and bad ways. I, I sense that there is going to be more than one episode where we're going to talk about uh, Duran Duran and their side projects. Right. All right. Well, so going back to the theme of protest songs, our next song is Culture Club, the war song. I'm going to go ahead and say I hated this album. Really? Okay. <laughs> I had the, both of their first two albums, and they were great. This one was just so lackluster to me. I got it that Christmas alongside Arena, actually. This was really, this was about the best song on the thing. Yeah. See, now, I, I don't think I ever owned the album. I don't, I, I'm trying to place what other songs were on there. I really do love this song. Well, you know, yeah. the video for this song was also directed by Russell Mulcahy. I don't remember the video. There's, uh, they're marching in the streets. There's a bunch of little kids dressed like skeletons. There's That's a, right. There's That's right. Boy George has bright red hair. It uh, went to number 17 on the Billboard Hot 100. And obviously, I mean, I get you can't get any more blatant a protest song than to say war is stupid. You can't get any more obvious than that, right? Uh, Not at all. Yeah. So, uh, you know, what I did learn that I didn't realize, the background vocals, and then especially in the middle eight where there's this female vocal that's kind of doing like a very ethereal kind of tonal thing. Her name's Claire Torrey, and she's most famous for doing backing vocals on the Pink Floyd album, Dark Side of the Moon. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I went down a rabbit hole one night of looking up background singers on uh, wikipedia yeah and found all these chicks that had lucrative careers just singing on various albums i'm like wow yeah some of these girls are as rich as the rock stars nice. pretty pretty interesting footnote the rock and roll history right there nice well if i'm ever thinking of a career change right right so what's your next song trick 80s by Killing Joke.
which I actually wasn't aware of back then. I didn't hear this song until the 90s on all those, you know, best of the 80s compilations and stuff started coming out. This got used in some commercial there in the latest 90s. You know what else it got used in? I'm disappointed in you, Trey. What? It's used in the party scene for the movie Weird Science. Is it? Yeah. It's also been a long time since I've seen that movie. You know, I just finally bought myself the John Hughes box set with my Christmas money. And this song is on there. Oh, well, cool. Yeah. You know, I confess, though, when you put this on the list, I couldn't place it until I listened to it. I was I was having such a this was such a hard year to pick music for. Because there's too and many I'm, choices or both. Yeah. And then we were having to split it into two. So I was going, all right, what, what can I, some of it, I didn't want to pick the same band twice, but then this popped up and I was like, all right, this was perfect. Killing Joke is one of those bands that I knew of by name and by reputation, but you know, I, I'd be hard pressed if you were to stop me on the street and say, you know, uh, name a song by Killing Joke. I don't think I could have. Well, now you can. Now I can. All right. And these guys splintered off. One of them was in ministry at one point. They were all turning up in other bands. And I think they still somewhat function here now. They'll get together and do some shows. Well, it's good stuff. I don't think they ever broke any ground over here really at all. No. Just kind of got ignored largely. Hmm. Shall we move on to the next song? Let's go. All right. I had to pick. One of the songs by one of my idols, David Bowie. And in 1984, he released the song Blue Jean. Blue Jean. I just One of those Friday night video shows was mm -hmm. carrying on for weeks. Ever going to premiere the video? I guess obviously you would have seen MTV doing the same, but it was another one of those where you, as soon as a single released, you could buy a video cassette of the video too, you know, same day. Well, the video was a big deal because it was directed by Julian Temple. Yeah. And it was like a 21 minute video called Jazzin' for Blue Jean. And it's kind of clever because Bowie's actually playing two different characters one of them is screaming lord byron who's the singer but then one of them is like this basically this schmuck who's trying to impress a girl and and trying to get into the concert and get screaming lord byron to act like he knows him to impress the girl and it's kind of funny seeing david playing such a, a self-deprecating character like that 
you know, I don't know that I ever saw a long form video. No? I know I saw the short down that they would play on, you know, meant for regular rotation or whatever, however you want to put it. I don't know that I ever saw that. Hmm. I remember seeing it for sale in the stores. Remember, I didn't have MTV. It's on YouTube. Right. Mm -hmm. You know. So this song went to number eight on the Billboard charts, and it was written solely by David Bowie. No, no collaboration on the writing. I personally like this song because I like his lyrics. I like his use of words. You know, he's he's discussed he's describing this girl that his blue jean that that he likes. Uh, she's got a police bike. She's got a turned up nose. But it's it's just so clever the wordplay that he uses here. It, it's really a good good example of what a talented songwriter Bowie was. He just and David always had a theme to everything he was doing. You know, the, the, everything was themed. Every album mm -hmm. almost had a concept to it. And he kept reinventing himself too. He had all these different oh, characters, yeah, totally. right? And Screaming Lord Byron would be one of them. You know, he did like the Thin White Duke. He did Ziggy Stardust. Mm -hmm. He did Aladdin Sane. You know, all these different characters that he kind of went through over the years. Uh, so I, I always admired his ability to just completely reinvent himself and never get stale, you know? He would have been, been a great marketing exec had he not made it rock and roll. But you know what? I'm kind of glad that he did. But yeah, well, yeah. He did go with rock and roll. You know we what I mean? We got the better version of Bowie with him being yeah. successful in music. Yeah. So uh, you picked an interesting song for our next one. Well, you know, it's On the Dark Side by John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band, otherwise known as Eddie and the Cruisers, from the movie Eddie and the Cruisers. This movie came out in summer of 83 and it absolutely totally tanked theaters as did the soundtrack and the song was originally released along with that it got nowhere in summer of 84 hbo got the movie and ran it and it gained a whole bunch of steam so they re-released the song and became a massive hit now would you believe this is a movie that i've never seen and i've tried i have tried to find it on streaming so that I can watch it and I can't find it anywhere. You know, it's oddly hard to find these days again. Yeah. It's a cool movie. If you like rock and roll, but even by the slightest, you'll enjoy the movie. It's set in the sixties and it's about a, I guess you could say a bar band that got mm -hmm. moderately successful. And then the singer just sort of disappeared. Yeah. I don't want to say anything and ruin it for people. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of like a, a mystery type thing. What happened to the lead singer? What happened to Eddie? Right. 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 So interestingly enough, John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band had actually been around since 1972. Yeah. And just, yep. 
but it wasn't until Eddie and the Cruisers that they got any kind of real notice, I think. Now, the first time I heard this song, I honestly thought it was Bruce Springsteen. You're not the first person I've ever heard say that. I, there, There's definitely some similarity there. So as you mentioned, at first when this song was released in 83, it didn't do so well. I think it went to like number 64 on the charts. But they re-released it in 84 after, as you mentioned, the HBO release of Eddie and the mm-hmm. Cruisers. And then it went all the way up to number seven on the Billboard Hot 100. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember my first time seeing the movie. I just went nuts. Yeah. And it seemed like that same week is when the song broke out on radio. I mean, it, it's really a fantastic movie. I... Well, you always were a big fan of like the 80s musical type movies i mean like streets of fire i think you were a big fan of as well weren't you oh yeah i love that movie so somebody's apparently trying to remake it now oh are they really well that'll come up next year so let's say that yep 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 yep. because that was a big big for 85 yeah they did make a sequel to this movie yes they did and i think it might have been straight to video and no it got a theatrical release because i saw it in the theater people will tell you it's terrible it's not Really? It's undated, but it's not a bad movie. It kind of kind of goes back and explains everything. It's, it's kind of cool. It just tanked, though, didn't it? I don't think it's one of those things back then. You know, a movie would open and stay in theaters for a week and then go away. Well, you know, kind of like Grease 2, right? The sequel that nobody asked for. Grease 2 was a little bit successful, though. Was it? Oh, yeah. It, it made some money. It wasn't the miserable failure. that It's one of those movies that people... You know, Peg is a box office bomb, and it didn't do gangbusters, but it didn't exactly bomb either. Okay. You know, I like Grease, too. It's one of those movies where you watch it, you kind of, so bad it's good type of thing. Okay. Well, next up, we have Everything She Wants by Wham. released as a double a side with last christmas was it yeah and i didn't know that yeah so i chose this song i mean i i loved wham back in the day i sure didn't but more on that in a second okay well (laughs) this song in particular i think this was the first song that i just really absolutely fell in love with i mean wake me up before you go go you can take it or leave it but this one, it had a much darker subject matter. This is a good song. It, it, it's it's a very good song. So if you listen to it, it's, you know, a young man who feels trapped in a relationship where, you know, he's working, trying to support his wife. And then there's a baby on the way and how unhappy he is. What I didn't realize 
is that George Michael recorded everything on this track by himself using a Roland Juno 60. I didn't know that. Oh, see, now I don't. Well, <laughs> I didn't. So so tell me more, Trey. <laughs> That's all I really know is that he basically did this on his own. Yeah. He's, I'm pretty sure he used an 808 drum machine in this, too. Mm. Probably one of those Roland bass, uh, bass line composers. Yeah. Which, I mean, kind of begs the question, what exactly did Andrew Ridgely do in Wham? That's, that's a <laughs> eighth mystery of the world. There you go. Eighth wonder of the world. Yeah. I don't think he was supposed to do anything but appear in pictures and just be there. Mm. I wonder what he's, you know, people have got to ask him that. I wonder if he's just like, fuck off, or he really gives him an answer. He was too busy racing cars. Hey, what, was he doing that at this point in time already? Oh, I don't. Um, after the fact. I think that was a little bit later he got into his accident. I think it might have still, he'd been racing at this time, but his accident was a little bit later. Now, I got this album also for Christmas of 84, and I didn't really want it. Oh, okay. <laughs> My mom would take popular albums and get them for me, especially in this point when I was still somewhat young. She, I guess she would just look at whatever was selling and get me three, four, five of them. Okay. I think I played the thing maybe one time all the way through and kind of stuck it. I got the cassette of this, actually. Just kind of stuck it to the side. I remember later on in the 80s, friends would come and say, you got the Wham album and make fun of me. Mm. I bet my mom gave me that. Mm. Well... Somebody liked it because it went to number one on the Billboard charts. Exactly, it did. And the vi this video was filmed when they did that tour of China. Oh, really? They were the first band to do that. I didn't know that. Now, how could you not know this? <laughs> how could you not see Never Ending Story? <laughs> it just, you know, never happened, you know. All right. Well, let's go from uh, Wham! to something that is very, very different. Trey, what's your next choice? Susie and the Manchies on their cover of Dear Prudence from their Hyena album, which features Robert Smith on guitar. I'm pretty sure this is the first thing I heard by them. I, I, I just, I honestly can't remember. This is a band that I was kind of late to the party, but yeah, this is a fantastic remake of the song. There was a guy that worked in my local Camelot music. This was, this would have been Halloween of 85, actually. And I get, got, saw the cure, got it done, was trying to buy everything I could buy. And one day this guy comes up to me and goes, you know, the cure singer played with this band somewhat off and on over the years. And, Offered me a copy of Hyena and I got it. Freaking loved it. Again, I didn't. I, I didn't know what goth was or anything. It was you know buying records by these bands and finding this stuff. Well, goth really wasn't a thing in eighty four, eighty five. At well, least they were calling it that. Apparently. Well, in my school, they were called the New Wavers. 
my friend tried to the whole guy thing. People were calling it death rock. That's what people down here were calling. I was like, the fuck is death rock? Sounds like heavy metal. See now, to me, death. Yeah, to me, death rock is like death metal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you look up like a uh, forty-five grade, they out there call themselves a death rock band. Hmm. So I don't know. It depends upon who you ask. Mm-hmm. I think I guess. Well, it's a great cover. It's one of, you know, I'm really not big on covers. This is one of the best covers ever done, if you ask me. It is really good, and it really gives a an interesting spin on the, the Beatles song. Mm-hmm. Plus, you got Robert there in the video, which is yeah. cool as hell. And Susie in her hairy armpits, <laughs> well, if you look closely. <laughs> but you didn't say anything about Nina and her hairy armpits for 99 I don't, know ever, I don't know that I ever saw. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Actually, I never noticed Susie hadn't shaved in that video until many, many years later. Somebody's like, look, she didn't shave. And I was like, why would you even notice that? You know, that type of thing. It's one of those things that to American eyes, it's, oh, scandalous. Oh, she doesn't shave her armpits. But in in Europe, that's absolutely no big deal whatsoever. Knowing her, she was making some kind of fat, weird fashion statement with her. Who knows? You know, she was always kind of kind of being bratty with things, I guess you could say. Yeah. So all right. What do you think? What do you think of this song? Me? Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I think it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's a great album too. If you've never heard it, get it, check it out. One of their best. Mm-hmm. A, a hallmark in the goth genre of music. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> all right picking up the tempo a little bit our next song is dead or alive you spin me round another band i really ne- never got huge into no? a couple of their singles you know uh pete burns became such a huge queer icon you know it just really blazed his own trail it's it, you know boy george did too to a lesser extent mm-hmm. but pete really took it to the next level and i had read his memoir freak unique my autobiography and he actually talked about this song in his memoir he said that it was based on two songs luther vandross's i wanted your love and little nell's song see you round like a record and he kind of took the two and kind of merged them together he had a tendency to take an existing song and sing a new harmony over the existing song and that's kind of how this started off so apparently the record company didn't like it, didn't want to put it out. So Pete took out a personal loan of 2,500 pounds to release the single. And it's also notable because it was one of the very first 
songs produced by Stock, Aitken, Waterman. Really? Yes. So they would later become very famous for producing acts like Kylie Minogue. A lot of a lot of dance acts in the early 90s, especially. But uh, Dead or Alive was one of the first first acts that they produced. I think this was probably the first thing I heard about them. They had a few previous singles, didn't they? Yeah, I think so. I'm trying to think where Brand New Lover fell, if it was before or after this, but this was, was definitely this. this was definitely their most popular song. And uh maybe about a year or two ago, do you ever watch Jimmy Fallon? Unless somebody like you tells me some band I like on there, I you know I've got TV in here. I don't even have cable hooked up to it. I just watch YouTube on it. Jimmy Fallon and Paul Rudd. This was uh 2019. So I guess it was three years, four years ago. They recreated the music video shot by shot with Paul Rudd playing Pete Burns. And it's such a perfect recreation. I'm going to send you the the link to it, Trey. You got to see this. It's freaking awesome. I'll check that out. All right. What do you got next? Walk Away by the Sisters of Mercy. This song features Wayne Hussey, who played on our previous song. He was the guitar player for Dead or Alive before joining the Sisters of Mercy. And in the summer when the clouds shone through I might go the same way to it And I could talk together Well, what am I supposed to do with you? And I would walk together then Sisters of Mercy's major label debut, which I don't think moved any ground over here whatsoever. And again, it's a, it's a hallmark of the goth genre of the 80s. It's a fantastic album. I don't really know a lot about Sisters of Mercy. I've got friends that are really into them. They never really did anything for me. I think you'd probably enjoy the Floodline album if you sat down and listened to it, but I could see where you, they wouldn't really do much for you. Yeah. You know, I just got right there in 86, all about everything goth. And, mm-hmm. You know, of course, they were one of the bands who people would, you should check these guys out. Yeah, they're like the founding, them and, and Susie and a few other bands are like the founders of goth culture. The godfathers of goth. There you go. Well, Wayne and Andrew Elrich, the leader of the Sisters of Mercy, didn't get along too well. Mm-hmm. So shortly after the tour for this album, Wayne left the band and tried to start another band called The Sisterhood, which Andrew promptly released a single under the name Sisterhood and stopped him from doing that. So <laughs> Wayne started Wayne started a band called The Mission UK, which some of you are probably very familiar with at this point. I've heard of Mission UK. Yeah, and they're, I don't know, some people love them. I always thought they were real hit or miss. Okay. Andrew Elwich is notable for being very hard-headed, and I kind of think Wayne is probably the same way. But uh, 
I don't know. You got anything to add to all that? I really don't. No, sorry. <laughs> it's I, all right. I don't know anything about this band. Like I said, again, it was so hard picking stuff for this episode. And that's not a bad thing either, by the way. I'm not, I'm not saying that like it was bad. It was just such an amazing year for music. And so much was out there. You just literally could spend an hour pouring through things, looking for stuff to put in it. Yes. All right, well, my next song, Trey, is Thieves Like Us by New Order. I've watched your face for a long time. It's always the same. I studied the cracks and the records. You were always so fantastic song so i didn't realize at the time but this was named after a 1974 robert altman film called thieves like us Mm -hmm. but that doesn't necessarily mean that it has anything to do with the song itself because the band had a tendency to take songs and just kind of randomly pull a title off of a book on a shelf or something like that oh i was gonna say that the name of a New Order song will never have any. I can think of one case where the song title fits a song, but you know that that just it's like they were just making it up as they went. Oh uh, yeah, they they would you know have a song and need a name for it, and so they would just pick a a book title or a movie title or something you know that seemed to fit the vibe. The one that you're thinking of was it Regret? Nineteen sixty three. Oh, oh, okay. So then there's two. I think we did talk about this song in our John Hughes episodes because an instrumental version of the song was used in Pretty in Pink. Mm -hmm. I personally love this song because I associate it with a particular point in my life in a particular time in a particular place. And that's all I want to go into as far as details. But the the lyrics are, are just beautifully written and so kind of melancholy the way that Bernard Sumner is singing them. He's another one. I wish he would do a book or something and just kind of go along and write about some of what he was singing about at times. Yeah. Because if you ever sit down and listen to some of New Order's lyrics, they can be very, very hateful. Or they can be very, very just out there. I'm like, who was he mad at? <laughs> or was he just, you know, just sort of this rhymes, we'll go with this type thing. Right. And it has no meaning at all. Right. Anything else about Thieves Like Us? I think that about covers it. Okay, so. Next up, we have Resurrection Joe by The Cult. Yet another goth fan popping up on here.
think 84 was the year of the goth band, maybe. Maybe. I think this is where we're starting. <laughs> no, I think that's, that's not too far off. I think this is where we're starting to see the seeds of what would become the goth mm-hmm. subculture. For sure. So, you know, Trey, I thought when you sent me this list, because I didn't know this song, I thought you misspelled the song title. But it turns out you didn't. They actually misspelled the name of the song on the single sleeve. And that was an accident, but they decided to keep the misspelling. And I'm only just noticing that, that you pointed it out when we were talking before we were started taping the night. And I'm like, what? Yeah, yeah it's really, really <laughs> badly misspelled. But, you and know. I'm pretty sure I had this 12-inch single way back when, too, and didn't even. Hey, I am from Georgia. You know, we're not known for <laughs> being smart down here you're funny well i'd never heard this song before trey this is uh the first time that i've ever heard yeah no it is pretty cool groovy isn't it? that bass line really gets in there and and hooks you yeah i mean it's a lot more raw and unpolished than some of their later stuff that was to come yeah i was gonna say they're gonna come up a lot more in the coming years episodes and the cult were kind of all over the place between the mid and late 80s yeah I don't think they were quite sure who they wanted to be, which not necessarily a bad thing. Well, I think that we said that about a couple bands today, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, most of those bands went on to find their way. I don't think Colt really, uh, hell, they still don't know what they're doing. And again, <laughs> that's not a bad thing. Nothing wrong with reinventing yourself. Exactly. So, you want to move on to your next song? Yeah. So, uh, in 84... There was a project started called This Mortal Coil. It was a British music collective led by Evo Watts Russell, who was the founder of the 4AD record label, mm-hmm. and producer John Fryer. And they brought in a series of musicians, singers, and such from the 4AD label, from bands like The Pixies, Dead Can Dance, and this one. Two members of the Cocteau Twins, Elizabeth Fraser and Robin Guthrie. And they did their interpretation of the classic song, Song to the Siren. On the floating ship's oceans, I did all my best to smile to your singing Originally, it was by Tim Buckley, who is actually the father of Jeff Buckley that we're going to talk about a little bit later in this episode. Tim Buckley is a uh, folk singer, died at a very young age. He did a lot of songs that are kind of in this vein of almost like a almost like a nautical theme. 
but he had other other you know really really beautiful songs too just an amazing songwriter when liz fraser and robin guthrie were recording this they didn't actually have tim buckley's lyrics they didn't have them written out and so they tried to figure out the lyrics from what they heard on tim buckley's recording and they got the lyrics wrong so Liz sings, were you here when I was flotsam? And the actual lyric is supposed to be, were you here when I was full sail? And that still bugs me when I hear it as much as I love this song. I love Liz Fraser's voice. I love Robin Guthrie. But that one lyric that doesn't even make sense, were you here when I was flotsam? That doesn't even make sense. But floating debris in the water with it yeah that means? yeah that's exactly what that means but why were you here when i was flotsam <laughs> okay maybe uh, she it could mean sort of just wander in the world i don't yeah. know yeah so anyway anyway <laughs> it's most notable i think for fans of david lynch because this song plays a very prominent part in the movie lost highway in a number of different places, although it does not appear on the Lost Highway movie soundtrack. I've never made it all the way through that movie. No? Oh, I love it. And I like David. I like David Lynch. So that one just doesn't really? Yeah, just it just I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna give it another shot at some point in the future. I just can't get through it. I don't know why it, that it's is. It's one of those that has like a, a, a narrative structure where it's like an Ouroboros where the beginning becomes the end. Mm-hmm. I love it. I think it's fantastic. I also love everything that Bill Pullman does. I think he is a fantastic actor. He is. Yeah. So he's one of those sort of everyman actors. He doesn't just takes on such a variety of roles and does well in all of them. All righty. So next up, we have Blasphemous Rumors by Depeche Mode. happened on this i found the 12 inch in the store and got it i had a i had the people are people single and couldn't find anything else by the post i couldn't find one of their albums or all i could find was singles 12 inches so i got to board it i like this it was sure different than people are people mm, very different this one was actually released as a double a side with somebody i can't remember what was on that record i want to say it was a different live version, not the one from uh, 101. Okay. Which they put out in 80, 89. Maybe somebody was on the same. Well, so there was a controversy, obviously, over the lyrics. Oh, yeah. 
And they were fearing some pushback from the religious community. That's why they decided to do the double A side with somebody rather than make it, you know, the A side blasphemous rumors and the B side, you know, somebody. The copy I had was definitely meant for it. So maybe it had a different track listing on it. Than okay. Well, you they... said you said it was a 12 inch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm sure that's got a different track listing. Mm -hmm. I came to the song my freshman year of high school. So that would have been 87. And this song really resonated with me because it was kind of a time in my life where I was questioning everything. Oh, yeah. Uh, especially everything that I'd been taught about religion and about you know life and i actually this is how pretentious i was in high school i actually had the lyrics to the song written out uh, and posted on the inside of my locker this was just when i kind of started noticing some of these bands kind of got a theme going here mm -hmm. you know this stuff sure is dark well you know it's interesting there was a a woman that I dated for a while and she was very much into Depeche Mode and she keeps telling me and she, she was really, really drunk, but she was telling me, you know, Depeche Mode, they're so sexy. They've never done a song that wasn't sexy. Well, have you heard? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, the, the one that came to mind, the one that I, I said to shut her up, I said, what about Pipeline? Because that is like the unsexiest song that Depeche Mode have ever done. But I would argue that this one would be another one. This is not a sensual, sexy song. No, not at all. I can kind of see where the rhythm and the music itself might kind of be the, the lyrical content. No, what? No, that's just absolutely bonkers. Yeah, yeah. It's an amazing song, though. And it's, it's not for everybody. I mean, it is, you know, um, subversive. In terms of its content, I think. I've noticed they sort of seem to have left it in the past in recent years. There was doesn't a, get much live play, sorry. Yeah, no, that's okay. There there was a rumor going around when I was in high school that Depeche Mode were satanic. Oh, of course. I think that went around about every day. Yeah. So you know, if the guy had on a black t shirt, they worshiped the devil. Oh, I know, I know. Uh, nobody had any idea what they were singing about. They worshiped the devil. Yeah. My mom was just sold on the fact that the cure was Satanists. I'm like, I, I got on a black shirt. I don't, I, mean, what do you, I don't know. Where do you come up with this stuff? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I think, yeah, I, I've got some stories. You just didn't understand it was what it was. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and, what and, Elvis. Any, and anything that you don't understand is immediately evil or, or immoral. Well, you mentioned, El did you say Elvis? Yeah. Well, Elvis was considered evil and and uh, subversive in his day too. I used to point that out to them. They kind of look like Elvis too, because it's what they were listening to when they were kids. You imbecile. Well, so there's kind of a segue here. I'm, I'm noticing there's a theme with our last two songs, and the theme is religion, I suppose, from blasphemous rumors to Hallelujah. This is Leonard Cohen. Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor. 
You know, that's where the Sisters of Mercy got their name is one of his songs. Oh, really? I'm sure they're not the only band who oh, took their name from a Leonard. stretch of the imagination, no. Leonard Cohen is, in my opinion, one of the greatest songwriters of all time. Oh, he's great. And he has a very distinctive voice and a very distinctive delivery. You cannot hear that voice and mistake it for anybody else. So reportedly he wrote 80 different verses for this song. It's one of those songs that he kept adding to and adding to. Now he is of Jewish heritage and that kind of shows up in the song in a few places where he's alluding to several verses in the old Testament like the story of Samson and Delilah from the book of Judges, where he says, she cut your hair. Mm -hmm. And then King David and Bathsheba, you saw her bathing on the roof, her beauty and the moonlight overthrew you. This probably has to be one of his most covered songs. It was covered by John Cale in 1991, Jeff Buckley in 1994. And I think that's probably the most famous cover. And Rufus Wainwright, in 2001 the beauty of this song is there's so many different ways you can interpret it on one hand is it a song of praise is it a is it is it what it appears to be hallelujah but on another hand is it bittersweet is it you know kind of a song of loss i remember the night or the saturday rather the saturday after the 2016 presidential election Saturday Night Live, they opened with, I don't remember the actress's name, playing Hillary Clinton, who had just lost the election. And all they did is they had her just sing this song. That's all they had her do. And it was perfect for that particular moment. I don't know how to explain. This song is just so, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. It's it, it's it's got so many different meanings coursing through it you know what i mean it, it's like a diamond with all the different prisms and you hold it up in the light and every every time you turn it ever so slightly the light reflects in a new way and it looks completely different and that's kind of how this song is to me there's so many different prisms so many different facets to it Every time I hear it, I'm interpreting it slightly differently. And I'm sure I'm bringing my own experiences and my own mood to it, my own circumstances. But I think everybody can. And there's something in this song that I think everybody can relate to. So this to me is maybe not strictly new wave alternative, but it is absolutely one of the best songs of 1984. I think he's for sure could be considered an alternative artist. And he definitely wasn't mainstream. I mean, definitely. I mean, the Sisters of Mercy, as I mentioned, took their name from him. And that's probably a whole boatload of other alt-rock artists that we can look up who are going to list him as a, one of their major influences. And there's even some pictures of the Sisters of Mercy hanging out with Winter Co. and floating around the web. Oh, so, really? You know, he was certainly aware of their admiration of him. Yeah. So, when did he pass away? Uh, just a few years ago. Um, it was. 2016. I was going to say, because it was within the Facebook years, because I remember doing a little post about it. Yeah. Probably mentioning the Sisters of Mercy. Well, and that was <laughs> that was one that hit me kind of hard. My intro to him was the Natural Born Killer sound. 
natural Ooh, born killer soundtrack. That's a that's a good one. Mine was actually the pump up the volume soundtrack. Was he on there? Oh, everybody knows. Yeah. Concrete wine code. Is his version on there too? Is his ver his version was the song that Christian Slater played at the beginning of every broadcast. He opened his his pirate radio broadcast with everybody. Everybody knows, knows wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Concrete One covered the song for the soundtrack. I haven't oh. seen the movie in so long, so I, I I can't remember which one was used in the movie versus. Right. No, it was definitely it was definitely Leonard Cohen. And there's another band for you that considers him a huge influence. It's Concrete One. Cool. Well, Trey, that brings us to the end of 1984. We made it. Sure did. That was a big year for music. 1985 is going to be because mm -hmm. it gets even more bonkers. So it'll definitely be good when we get to 1985. But before we get to 85, Trey, we have coming up in a few weeks, Australia Day. What I propose that we do for our next episode to celebrate Australia Day. I would like for us to identify our top 10 Australian singers slash bands from this time period, from the 80s and early 90s. What do you think? Okay, let's do it. And it should be an easy list to pick. It should be, but it's not. You and I have been emailing right, back right. and forth about this. Well, there's only so many, you know. Well, you had an interesting suggestion too that I like. So you had suggest. Do you, do you want to say what your suggestion was? I forgot what my suggestion. Oh, was. okay. It was. Remember, I've had COVID all week. Okay, <laughs> COVID brain. No, um, you had suggested because I was trying to order things where we would count down the top ten, and you suggested, well, what if we let our listeners vote and decide? Oh yeah, do a do a listener poll. That's right. And I love that idea. I think that's fantastic. That was before I got sick, wasn't it? Yeah. Was that when I was that was, sick? That was, well, that was probably right when you were coming down with it, my friend. So, Trey, in two weeks, I think that's our plan. We're going to identify the our top 10 in no particular order, and then we will give our listeners an opportunity to vote. And then uh, eventually we'll count down in an episode and we'll let everybody know who the number one choice was. What do you think? All right, let's do it. All right. It'd be pretty cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I think there's going to be a few surprises in there, too. All right. All right. So, Trey, glad you're feeling better. Thank you for sticking with it. Thank you. I'm glad I could pull it off. I was <laughs> worried in the moments leading up to it. I was like, I hope I don't get coughing fit. Or I don't think I coughed at once, did I? You did once, and it's going to get edited out. So Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again for listening. We look forward to being back here in two weeks with our top 10 Australian acts. Goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And thanks again for all the support, guys.